0: Thank you, choir. What a great time of uh, of worship. If you have your bibles with with you today, go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter one and uh, hold your spot there If you want to snag John chapter one as well we 're going to be spending time in both of those and then moving a little bit through John also so John, uh, Colossians one and then John chapter one, two good places for us to. Get started so we 're continuing in the series uh, i 'll mention a little bit more about that series in just a moment. Week number two uh, today, and' uh, really excited about the message this morning. So when I went off to college, I, I, uh, I went to Armstrong here for two years back in the day, and um, uh, two years and a quarter actually, and then I transferred to the University of Georgia, so when I went to Athens, I had already been in college for a couple of years, kind of had my feet wet and, and uh, knew the drill, knew the routine. and when I went to, to Athens um, The first semester, I believe it was, uh, or one of those early semesters, I was in a class uh, on religion and uh, I don't think it was associated with my degree. I can't imagine that it was. Maybe it was an elective, but I was really, really excited because I thought, man, this is awesome. I'm gonna kind of like get to go to church and get class credit for it, and I was super excited about it a- until I got to the class, and, uh, and I realized it was exactly as advertised. It was a class on world religions. It was not a class expressly about Christianity. That was my mistake, and, uh, and so, I mean, I learned stuff, but it definitely was not a Christian class, and, and I remember the professor he, um, he was certainly not a follower of Jesus uh, as, as well. I mean, I think he was more kind of an Eastern mysticism, something or other, and, uh, but, but obviously not a follower of Jesus. And it was kind of that moment for me when I realized that uh, not everybody embraces Jesus the way that I was raised to embrace Jesus. Not everybody embraces Jesus the way that you may embrace Jesus. In fact, I would even go so far as to say there are a significant number of people, I think, even in the church today, who have followed Christ as Lord and Savior, but don't really understand so much about exactly who Jesus is and what he's all about. And, and, you know, when you look in Scripture, or or really outside of Scripture, you look in the culture today, you realize there are a lot of religions that exist that have varying views about who Jesus is. Judaism, for example. You know, when you look at Judaism, Judaism would hold Jesus out to be uh, a rabbi, to be a teacher, but they would not embrace Jesus as God. Back in Jesus' day, that was the case. Now, there were certainly those who were Jews by heritage that did follow Christ. We read of that in the Gospels in the New Testament. And there are still people today, they're called Messianic Jews, who received Christ as, as the Messiah, and they follow Jesus as Savior and as Lord. But as a people, right, uh, the Jews, and as a religion, Judaism, holds out Jesus to be a teacher and uh, a rabbi, but not so far as, as to embrace him as God. When you look at Hinduism, Hinduism uh, would consider Jesus to be a... Uh, a moral teacher to a large degree, and a God, but not God, right? Now, recognize in Hinduism, you've got a, a variety, a, thousands of false gods. They don't consider them false, but would be false gods that they would worship, and, uh, and they would consider to be deity to themselves. They would just sort of throw Jesus on the top of the heap, right? Kind of mix in there with all the others that they would worship as as little g gods that are, are, don't even really truly exist. So Hinduism would treat Jesus as just kind of a, another one of those gods. Islam, uh, the Muslim religion, would treat Jesus as a prophet, but they would not embrace Jesus as God. And Buddhism would treat Jesus as just an enlightened man It certainly would not ascribe any kind of deity to him specifically. So when you look across the culture, you've got a variety of beliefs about Jesus. Now the question is, what does the Bible say about him? What it how does the bible treat the person of Jesus, And that's sort of the scope of this particular series we're in. We started last Sunday. This is message number two in this message called, uh, called Jesus, Come and See. So the title is built off of John chapter 4. Uh, the woman at the well, we talked about this last Sunday. Uh, she met Jesus at a point in her life when she was searching, searching, searching. She had tried virtually everywhere, every relationship you could imagine, to try to find fulfillment in her life. All of them left her dry and empty. She met Jesus and uh, had conversation with him. Jesus put him, himself out there as the Messiah. Messiah. Messiah that she'd been waiting for absolutely changed her life. And in John 4, she goes back to her townspeople, back to the village, and she tells everybody, hey, come and see. You know, come and see. I I think I've met the Messiah. I think I've met the Christ. Why don't you come and see? And the whole village was virtually changed when they embraced Jesus as Lord, as Savior, and as God. And so that's the invitation, is to come and see. I and mean, it's the greatest invitation in all of history. And so in this series, we're unpacking uh, sort of like a biography, in a lot of ways, of who Jesus is. Now, we, we're using as our text the pages of Scripture, right? Because the, the, the Bible, we looked at this last Sunday, is the only trusted source in existence that tells us what we know about Jesus. You know, there are movies out there, there are books out there that have been written by people. But it's really the Bible, that's the only trusted source to tell us about who Jesus is. He is the most influential person to ever walk the face of this earth. Bar none, he is the most influential person that ever walked the face of this earth. We still mark time by him uh, uh, before Christ and after, right? We, our calendars still reflect the influence of him. There, there are hospitals that are built in his name. There's more work done in the name of Jesus than any other figure who ever walked the face of this earth. And when we look at the Bible, not only is it the only trusted source to tell us about who he is, but as well, it tells us everything we need to know about a decision that we make regarding who he's going to be to us. And so the Bible is our God. We're walking through this series called Jesus Come and See. A lot of you have done that. You place your faith in Christ. My my hope for you is that you'll continue to come and see, grow deeper in your understanding of who he is. And for those of you that are still kind of on the fence, maybe a friend invited you. you're, You're just kind of thinking through who is Jesus. Maybe you weren't really raised in church. You haven't really read the Bible a whole lot. You've seen a couple of movies. You've heard some people at work talk about him. Your idea isn't real clear. It's kind of hazy. You just sort of want to know a little bit more of who he is. Well, this is what we're doing, this whole series as we head up to the holidays. And again, we're just working through the Bible, and so you have an opportunity to come and see for yourself as well. Here's why this is important. It's important because he invites us to come and see so that we can know him. It's important for us to know him for who he is, to know him accurately, because he wants relationship with us, and on the other side of that coin at the same time, we have a desperate need to know Jesus. We have a desperate need to know him for who he is and to know him in relationship, and so this is a pivotal series that we're looking through as we invite you to come and see Christ according to the Gospels, according to the pages of his word. So today we're going to look at a message it really kind of has to be the first one, in a sense. Last week was an intro. This is kind of the first building block. This has to be the first one. I know the title is not real engaging. It's not real exciting. It's the best I could come up with. Uh, it's, it, the title is The Eternality of Jesus. Woo-wee, you're excited now, aren't you, right? The Eternality of Jesus. It sounds like a seminary. I know you can't wait, but it's going to be, it's going to be better than, uh, than just the title. If you want something a little more uh, uh, to the point, let's just call the message Eternal God. That's what we're gonna be unpacking this morning. So forever is a concept. When you think about eternity... Eternity and forever, those are concepts that are just hard to wrap our mind around, right? Just hard to grasp. Now, th- this is not my, 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 my finest cool moment. It's kind of nerdy, actually. But I remember when I was a kid just trying to, trying to grasp and understand the concept of forever. And uh, it's enough to make your hair hurt, right? Because eternity and forever are deep, deep subjects that are just hard for us to wrap our minds around. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One, it's because our minds are finite. We can't understand everything, Right, we're not infinite in our understanding, we're not God, and so our minds are finite, we can only understand so much. And when you start trying to wrap your mind around the concept of forever or eternity, it's just too much. I mean, we can't understand it completely, and at some point, it begins to become just a little bit confusing for us. But another reason I think that it's really hard for us to understand fully the concept of forever or eternity is because we're surrounded by death, right? We don't really see eternity. As examples, we can't really look at anything that we can say, oh, that's what eternity looks like. Oh, that's what eternity looks like. Because we're surrounded by death. I mean, think about it. It's fall. I looked out in my backyard the other day. And I noticed you know, there are leaves out there, right? you know, leaves that were on a tree just a few days ago, and they're starting to change color a little bit, right? Not a whole lot. That's called fall in Savannah, right, when, when they change colors for a day or two. But those leaves are starting to fall. I mean, they're starting to hit the ground. They're dying. I mean, they're falling off the tree, and just a matter of days or weeks, you're going to be raking them up or cutting them up or whatever you like to do with them. Why? Because they're they're dead. I mean, they're they're not going to produce anything. They're falling off the tree. It's death. You're surrounded by death. I was coming back last night from uh, from being out of town. It was kind of late. I was sitting at the pilot station in Dublin, exit 51, and uh, grabbing a cup of coffee. And I looked over, and there's a guy there in his car. He uh, had his hood up, and uh, he had uh, a battery charger. He didn't need help. He had it all figured out. He had it hooked up to his battery. His battery had died. He jumped it off, charged it up, and (laughs) off he went, right? Batteries die, flowers die, pets die, loved ones die. I mean, we're surrounded by death. In fact, this is the season. We're three weeks into college football. Some of you, your team's hopes have died already, right? I mean, (laughs) It's not looking good. <laughs> it's just, it's, I mean, You're already there. I mean, don't even get to the NFL yet. The Braves are going well, but you know, maybe your team, not so much. We're surrounded by the whole idea of death. We can't look at an example and say, that's what forever looks like, regardless of the cards that you buy at CVS that cost $8 apiece, and you write out to your loved one, I will love you forever. You still don't really quite understand what that looks like. We can't grasp that. And yet when we come to the pages of Scripture and when we start dealing with Jesus specifically, here's a principle, the first one I want you to jot down. We're going to build on this. This is going to be crucial the rest of the series. The first principle we see is that Jesus has existed eternally. He has existed eternally eternally. I mean, there is no other being. This does not apply to anyone except to God. The universe is not eternal, right? Even atheist uh, scientists today who study these things, they admit the universe had a beginning, that the universe is not eternal, that it's not been here forever. A few decades ago, they believed that. Now, the evidence points otherwise. The universe is not eternal. Angels are not eternal. Maybe you didn't know that. They're created. I mean, there's no other being, there's no other entity in existence that we can say is eternal except for God. And and this is a deep thought. This is really deep for 9 o'clock. It's a little better for the 1030 service, right? But there was never a time when Jesus was not. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He has always existed. He is eternal. In fact, not only uh, w- would, we, would we say that He is eternal, uh, but, but the implication of that is, is that, that He's not a created being. Now, sometimes you may have people knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? For, for example, or Mormons, you know. They're going to come knocking on your door and you're going to have a conversation with them. Hopefully, you don't treat them like an enemy. Hopefully, you treat them as like folks that God loves and Jesus died for and that they need truth. And as you engage in conversation with them and you start talking about Jesus, you're going to understand that their belief is that Jesus is a created being. Muslims are going to be the same, right? That he is created. That's just simply not what the one trusted source, the Bible, we've already gone into the evidence last Sunday of why we can trust this source, the Bible. That's not the picture the Bible paints. Jesus is not a created being. In fact, we see just the opposite, that he's the one who is doing the creating, right? Colossians chapter 1. Take a look at this passage. We just sang this uh, about this just a few moments ago. Colossians chapter 1. Look at what it says here. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossa. And uh, chapter 1 verse 15 through 18. I want to read it and I'm going to pull out a couple of, uh, of words that are really important. Verse 15 it begins. It says, he, it's speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, right? There's that picture of the forever, the eternal quality of Jesus' nature. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That word image is an important word. He is, if we go back to the first part there, if we can, he is the image of the invisible God. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, people did not see God physically. They saw him revealed through his works. For example, Noah saw God displayed through his power over creation when he flooded the whole earth. Moses saw God for his works. He saw God demonstrated, manifested through his power over creation whenever the bush didn't burn up, right? It wasn't consumed and it didn't even smoke, right? Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself in the burning bush. He also saw God manifested through his power over creation whenever he split the waters and Israel crossed on dry ground from slavery into freedom. <clears throat> At the same time, Israel saw God manifested. They didn't see him physically. They saw him manifested through his works when he provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years. The clothes didn't wear out. They had food provided. Uh, they had water provided. God was faithful. God was a provider. And, and even when you go a little bit further um, and, and we look across the pages of Scripture, um, we, we see that all through the Old Testament, and God he revealed himself through his works. But when Jesus showed up on the scene in real time, in the Gospels, Matthew, Luke both record the events surrounding his birth. This wasn't just God being seen through his works. This was God being seen in flesh and blood, right? This is God on the scene. This is God standing right there amongst the people. That's why Paul writes and he says that he is the image. Jesus would say in the Gospels, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? In other words, we're not the same. We're going to get that to that in just a second, but we are God, This would be a very strong statement that Jesus would make that would point not only to his eternal quality, but to his deity as well. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, let me go back again. Let's talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses for just a second. Not, again, to slam them, but uh, what they believe about Jesus is not accurate. When they talk about Jesus, their baggage that says Jesus unpacks a lot differently than the Bible's baggage that talks about Jesus. It's a whole different Jesus, right? So when you're talking with them, if you're engaged in conversation, for example, and you're talking about Jesus for who he is, and if you say, oh, well, I believe that Jesus is God, which is a great statement, they're going to say, "Oh no, he's not God," and they're going to point you more than likely back to this particular passage, Colossians chapter one, and they're going to say that that uh, why does it say that he's the firstborn of all creation? Now, that, that's a lot of linguistic gymnastics that are being played there. Okay, so uh, let, let me just let me make a point here, real quickly, before we before we move on. That English word "firstborn" is a very specific word. It translates the Greek language right with an English word "firstborn." It does not have anything to do with birth order, okay? So when they say, they take you to this verse in your Bible, and they say, how could Jesus be God when it clearly says he was the firstborn of all creation, That word firstborn has nothing to do with birth order. It has everything to do with rank. It is a specific English word. It doesn't mean literally firstborn any more than fire truck literally means a truck that's on fire, right? It is a specific English word that translates a Greek-specific Greek word that means rank superiority. It doesn't mean birth order. This is not a birth order commentary. In fact, if you go a little further in Colossians chapter 1 it's going to use that word again in in verse 18, that he is the firstborn from the dead, right? It can't mean literally firstborn, again, because numerous people were born before Jesus came on the scene in the Gospels. Numerous people had died before he came on the scene in the Gospels. It doesn't mean he was created. It means that he is in a position of superiority over all. Context of Colossians 1 is very clear. It says everything was created by him, that he is before all things, verse 17, right, that he is eternal. You go to John, John in his gospel, man, he lays it out so uh, so incredibly clearly as well, first four verses in John chapter one. It says in the beginning, now the context of this would have been before time. Uh, again, John He only has language to deal with. It's kind of the only palette he can paint on. And so trying to explain that Jesus is eternal is not easy. This is the way he describes it. In the beginning, right, before anything ever started was the Word. It's a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we know the Word there? If speaking of Jesus, look down at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's clearly talking about Jesus. Here's what it says, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. He's creator. In him was life, right? He's Savior. And the life was the light of men. So if you replace the word word with the word Jesus, in the beginning was Jesus, Jesus was with God, Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him, apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the picture that's painted. Jesus is eternal, he has existed eternally outside the scope of time. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. Principle number two, and you can't separate this. I was going to make these two different messages, but it's just impossible almost to do this, so we're just going to go there. Principle number two then, Jesus not only is eternal, but he's God. He's God. Again, Muslims wouldn't hold to that. Countless cults wouldn't hold to that. Hindus wouldn't hold to that. Even Judaism wouldn't hold to that. He's God. Now here's where you get into the conversation surrounding the whole concept of the Trinity. Now, you think forever is hard to get your mind around. I mean, think about the Trinity. It gets a little deep, folks, (laughs) trying to understand the the Trinity. Centuries ago, there was a church father who made the comment along the lines of, if you try to understand the Trinity, you lose your mind. If you fail to accept the Trinity, you lose your soul. So what is the idea of the Trinity? Here's the idea of the Trinity. One God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, here, come, here comes the knock on the door again, right? Open it up. You're having some good conversation. and Kind of losing ground a little bit, they are. and it's, Oh, well, you, you know the word Trinity is not even in the Bible, right? You ever heard that one? Well, you know Trinity is not even in the Bible, Neither is Kingdom Hall, but that doesn't seem to slow any of that down, right? The Trinity's not even in the Bible. Well, yeah, the Word's not in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is throughout the pages of the Bible. That there is one God who's revealed Himself as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. I've used this image or one like it before. Uh, I came across it years ago. This helps to capture it just a little bit. So you've got the idea of God, right? He's shown us who He is in Scripture the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing, when you think about the concept of the Trinity, the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, right? Distinct, three persons, and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. We may not see the word Trinity in the Bible, but we find the concept of it not just sprinkled but just hammered all through the pages of scripture. For example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first 5 verses, in the beginning God created. The word God in the fourth ver the fourth word of the Bible in the beginning God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And that Hebrew word Elohim, this is something really interesting, it's actually written in the plural. Right? It's written in the plural, and then it says, in the beginning, God, the word created is a specific Hebrew verb that is written, <laughs> now remember, subject and verbs, they're supposed to correspond one with the other, uh, the word God is in the plural, the word created is in the singular, and even in the first five ver- uh, words of the Bible, you see this concept of the Trinity that there is one God who's revealed himself as three distinct persons, father, son, and holy spirit you look down to Deut- uh, move over to Deuteronomy chapter 6 every single Jew would have known and been able to memorize Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 it was a portion of what's called the shema this would have been a prayer Hear, O israel the lord is our god the lord is one Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 this particular passage of scripture when you read the word god there again it's written In the plural. And when you look at the word one, it's the same Hebrew word there to describe the union between Adam and Eve, that the two became one flesh. And so there's, again, this picture that God is one God who has revealed himself as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. You move over to the Gospels, you don't have to turn here for the sake of time. You can just read it on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is being baptized. You may say, well, what, what exactly is that all about? I thought Jesus is God. Why did he have to be baptized? He didn't have to be baptized. He did that to set an example for us. right? It's kind of an identification thing. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God... Descending as a dove and lighting on him or resting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens. Well, whose voice is this? Well, we know it's the Father. Why? Because of what he said. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Right there at the, at, at the pinnacle moment. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You have at his baptism, <laughs> you've got the Son being baptized. You've got the Holy Spirit who's showing up on the scene. And you've got the Father who's speaking from heaven. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In fact, you go to the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus, just before he ascends to go back to the Father, gives what we call a great, a great commission to those who know him. He says in Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, how? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize them in the name of Moses, the great Old Testament deliverer. He doesn't say baptize them in the name of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. No, he didn't say any of that. That. He didn't say baptize him in the name of David. He didn't say baptize him in anyone else. He said baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this is reflective of God, right? This is who God is. He's one God who has revealed Himself in three persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even Jesus Himself, when He would begin to to speak with those who He was trying to reach, but who opposed Him. He would clearly communicate his own deity. Listen to what it says here. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus is in the midst of conversation with people who are not going to embrace him. He makes the comment, John chapter 10, verse 30, a very simple phrase. He says, I and the Father are one. This was a a claim to be co-equal with the Father. This was a claim. People will say, oh, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be God. Maybe you've heard that one, right? Oh, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. I don't know why you believe that, that, he's a, that he's God. Nowhere in the Bible does he claim. You know what? No, we don't have a spot in the Bible where he says, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone, can I have your attention? I have a simple statement to make. I am God. Thank you very much. We don't have that in the Bible. But seriously, I mean, come on. <laughs> How clear was this to the people on, the, on site who heard him say it? We don't have this on the screen, but the next verse, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Because they considered this to be blasphemy. He was saying, he was claiming to be God. John chapter 8, you move back a couple chapters in John. Another conversation with people who would oppose him. Verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad just a little note, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus walked this earth and made this statement. 2,000 years, okay? There was nobody in the first century talking about you, saying, I rejoice to see their day, right? They didn't know you were coming, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jew said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, And you've seen Abraham, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There's a double shot right there. We won't get into the I am part of that. We unpacked this a couple weeks ago, seven times in John where Jesus says, I am. And it it clearly, to every Jew in the crowd, ties him in to to being God. But he says, before Abraham was even born 2,000 years ago, he says, I am. (laughs) And they understood what he said. Next verse, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He didn't hide himself out of fear. It just wasn't the Father's time table for him to die on the cross. You go back a little further, John chapter 5. And this is such an interesting commentary here that John makes. John chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 18 John says for this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. I mean, there's more evidence, but I think that's enough to know that the Bible considers Jesus God. Jesus considered himself to be God eternal, without beginning, without end, no less than God himself. So let's say you're in a conversation with somebody who's wanting to try to steer you down a different path. Maybe it's someone knocking on your door. Maybe it's a conversation at work, someone who disagrees because they have a different concept of who Jesus is because they saw some movie on CBS, you know, at Easter or whatever, and they're having a conversation, and they're trying to say, you know, know, let me ask you this. So if Jesus was God, why did he pray to the Father? You ever heard that one? If he's God, why did he pray to the Father? That's not a problematic question. That's not a difficult question. In fact, it affirms the Trinity that <laughs> there's one God as Father, as Son, too distinct, you know. Just the Holy Spirit's not a part of that conversation. Why did he pray to the Father? It's a very simple answer. Because when Jesus, God the Son, walked this earth, he willingly placed himself in a position of submission to the will of the Father. That's how he operated on this earth. Never ceased to be God, co-equal. Next Sunday. The plan is, God willing, that we're going to look at the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. So Christmas next Sunday, wear your red and green. It's going to be fun. And uh, drink some hot chocolate if you want. Put that in your you know, little thing, set of coffee. And we're going to look at that. But when Jesus was in the manger, right, in Matthew's account, Luke's account, when he was in the manger, he, he was no less God than he was when he rose from the dead. I mean, he didn't lay aside his deity, but Philippians 2 says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not take advantage of that to the point to where he took on limitations in his human body. When he came as God the Son and he walked this earth, he took on the limitation of a physical human body. He did not cease to be God. However, he laid aside not the deity, but some of the the allowances of his deity, if that makes sense. He couldn't be everywhere at the same time. God is everywhere. When Jesus was on this earth, he was limited to the confines of his human body. He could not be in point A and point B at the same time. It was either one or the other. But he never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be anything less or anyone less than God. So when he walked this earth, he placed himself in submission to the Father. And when he prayed, he prayed to the Father, not because he was less than God. It was the relationship he had with the Father while he walked this earth. John 17, he would even pray. He would reference to the relationship that he has with the Father from before time began. Right? He's eternal, and he's God. He's existed eternally. He is God. There's never been a time when Jesus was not. Again, forever is hard to grasp for us. The whole concept of eternity is hard to grasp because we're finite in our understanding. Death surrounds us. We don't see examples of eternity a whole lot. But it's also hard to grasp really in a lot of ways for us just in our limited understanding. It's hard to grasp the concept of eternity because we live in a time-driven culture, right? All of our lives are driven by time. We have calendars on our walls at home. You have a desk calendar. You've got a phone that's got a calendar. Everything about your life is time driven. You know where you're going to be later today. You know where you've got to be tomorrow morning. You know what time you need to leave with the kids to get them to school. You know what time you need to punch the clock at work. You know what time you're getting over and finishing and going home. You know what time that event is on Tuesday night. You know what time you're leaving to catch a flight. All of your life is driven by time. For every one of us, our lives are time-driven except for God. God is not bound by time in the least. He is timeless and eternal, Jesus included. So whenever we, whenever we teach or preach, whenever we read a passage of Scripture, here's the thing, and I, I'm starting to close here. I'm going to make three more quick applications and we're done that you always want to ask the question, and not, I don't mean to say this um, with a wrong attitude, but anytime I preach, I hope you're asking yourself two questions. Number one, so what? And number two, now what? Right. So when we look at the concept of Jesus being eternal, that he's God, that he's without beginning, without end, we have to ask the question, so what? So what's the big deal? What does this mean to me? What do I do with this? So, so what? How does this affect me? And then the second question: Now what? Let me give you three, and we're done, real fast. These are on the on the screen behind me. First one: So because Jesus is eternal God, He's not bound by circumstances. So, so, so what if He's eternal? So what if He's God? Well, what's the big deal? Well, one of them is that He's not bound by circumstances. You are. You're bound by your circumstances jesus is not you have a hard day you have challenges that come in your life you have your finances that go south you've got health issues that come you're kind of on the skids and relationally maybe with a family member or a friend or things aren't going so well for you in some area of your personal life right you're bound by your circumstances jesus however is not bound by circumstances we can say it this way his hands are not tied by your circumstances He is Lord over those circumstances. He can do whatever he well pleases to the point to where even the hardships that come in our lives, he's able to work those out for good. So what that he's eternal? So what that he's God? Well, one of the reasons we say so what is because he's not bound by our circumstances. Our circumstances never put him in a jam. So so now what? What do I do in response to that? Well, the now what is that we trust him with the details of our lives. Whenever things are not going well, whenever things are on the skids, whenever things are difficult, we trust those details to him. That's where we have peace. That's where we have joy because I may be bound by my circumstances. I've got to walk through the valley, but he's not bound by any of that. He's over all of it because he's God and because he is eternal. There's a, there's a second So what? Because Jesus is eternal God, he also has supreme authority over your life and over my life. If he's eternal, and if he's God, and if he's creator, and we're part of his creative work, he made us. Listen, we find ourselves living in submission to his authority. He is God, and we are not. Well, now what? It means we obey him, and it means we follow him. We obey him and we follow him with our finances. We obey him and we follow him in our marriages. We obey him and follow him when everybody's looking and when nobody's looking. Because he holds supreme authority over our lives. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And then finally, because Jesus is eternal God, he is really, he's truly our only ultimate hope. Nothing else holds hope for you and for me. Not our jobs, not our relationships, not our families, not our health, not our successes, not our strong points, not our skill sets. None of those things give us any hope. Our only ultimate hope is the person of Jesus who is eternal. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by anything else. He is our creator. He is in authority. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, including you and including me, that he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He's not only our only hope when we go through times of difficulty. He is our only hope for eternal life. He is the only option. There is no other option on the table. Our good deeds won't make us right with God. Going to church won't make us right with God. Sincerely believing something else isn't going to make us right with God. We only get to God through Jesus, period. He's eternal. And he's God. He created you, he loves you, he died for you, he rose for you, he stands ready to forgive you, wipe the slate clean of all your sins to give you a brand new heart and a brand new start and to walk with you throughout the rest of these days, working them all out for good, blessing and providing for you. And when it's all done and your eyes close in death on this side, he enables you to pop them open or he opens them for you in eternity in a place that no ear has heard, no, no eye has seen and no mind has conceived how good he has it made for us. In eternity with Him in heaven. That's the God. That's the Savior who invites you to come and see. Christian, so that you can go deeper and know Him better. And for the one of you maybe who's not made that choice yet, to come and know Him, not just forever, but today as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Eyes closed, heads bowed, right where you sit today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you can make that choice as an act of your own will, right where you sit today. You can decide, you can even tell Jesus yourself because he's alive and well and he hears you. Lord, I'm ready to lay down my sin and I invite you to forgive and take over and he'll do it. If you're ready for a Lord and a savior, there's only one who fits the the mold and it's him. And you can invite him to be that for you today. God, we thank you that in your word, it shows us, it doesn't leave us guessing. It shows us who you are, Jesus, and you invite us to come and see. And the very base level that you are without beginning and without end, there's never been a time when you were not. That we only have the concept of time because you began it, you started it, you, you spoke it into being when you created Lord, we know you for who you are, God, only through a relationship with Jesus. And we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and worshiping you and doing life with you, not just now, but for all of eternity. So God, may you get glory through the lives that we live. And for those that don't know you today, may that relationship start today as they give their lives to you, Jesus. We thank you for all you do. And it's in your name, Lord, we pray.